This message was recorded at the Billy Graham Training Center at The Cove in Asheville, North Carolina. Through the ministry of The Cove, we're training people in God's Word to win others to Christ. It's our goal to develop Christians who experience God through knowing Him better, knowing His Word, building godly relationships, and helping others know Him. We trust that this message will strengthen your walk with God and help you experience Him right where you are. Okay, yeah, I'm going to do a couple of these questions. I can't do all of them because uh, I don't know the answers to all of them. <laughs> uh, this has always bothered me. Why did Jesus tell the man that was healed, stop sinning or something worse may happen to you? Um, that's in, we're going to see that in John 5. I don't have a conclusive answer. I'll give you my answer is he's appealing to the man on his own level. It's almost it's ironic what he's saying because clearly Jesus doesn't teach that you suffer because of sin. So, or, or it's not a one-on-one. Certainly, we suffer the consequences of sin, but it's uh, when Jesus comes into your life, He's not going to tell you stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. So, I don't have an answer. Other words, in other words, I don't really have an answer to that question. Uh, do you know what prompted John to write his book? Well, he talks about the fact that. A lot of other books have been written, and these are written so that you may believe. He's the only person that actually gives us the purpose for his writing, and that's the end of chapter 20, I think. Um, True or false, shepherd broke the legs of their sheep um, that wandered. I've heard that, but I I haven't seen that in the ancient literature. I find it hard to believe that they would break the legs of their sheep, but I, I do not know. Uh, why did Herod build the temple? Was he Jewish? That's a great question. Uh, was Herod Jewish? Yes and no. He was Idumean, which is a group of people that were forced into conversion. So he was sort of half Jewish. Uh, but um, he, and he's, Herod is a very interesting person. He's playing this game. So to the Jews, he wants to be the, like the super Jew, the king of, king of the Jews. And so that's why he builds the temple. But he's also looking, he wants to be a good Roman too. So, uh, you know, he had, he had a harem. He was, I mean, all the horrible things that, that the Romans did in terms of their morals. Herod did all that stuff and more. Uh, he had, uh, um, you know, relationship with, with children. I mean, he was a horrible person. So was he Jewish? Well, it all depends. He wanted he wanted to appear to be Jewish. Let me say it that way, but uh, he was a horrible person. Um, in John three, is Jesus telling Nicodemus to be baptized again in water? Well, let's look, shall we? Because that's what we're gonna we're gonna look. Uh, this is a wonderful one of those long uh, discussions with that Jesus has with uh, just one person. And Nicodemus is a person for whom I have a tremendous amount of uh, affection. I just love this guy. Um, His name is an indication of how fragmented Judaism has become. His name contains the name of a pagan god. You have Nike Nike shoes on. Nike is the god of victory. It was a a pagan god. Nico is from Nike. Nicodemus, his name means let my people be victorious. That's what his name, but it's a Greek name. He's got a, he doesn't have a Jewish name. He's got a Greek name that's got the name of a God in it. So strictly speaking, that seems a little, a little off, but that's the fragmented world that, um, that the fir- first century 
Jesus' world is fragmented. So Jewish people have Greek names with pagan gods in them. But this, uh, the heading under this passage uh, that makes the most sense to me is this is a contrast between the old orthodoxy and the new reality. That's what's going on here. Nicodemus is a representative of the old orthodoxy and the frag- even the broken old orthodoxy. Jesus is a representative of a new reality that is in many ways incomprehensible. We're going to see that Nicodemus cannot get his mind around this. Uh, he cannot get his mind around Although Jesus in many ways is speaking in images from Ezekiel and new birth is a, is a concept that Nicodemus should have understood because it's in the Hebrew Bible. But, uh, so we're going to see all of this. So it's a wonderful, well, I love this passage and I love Nicodemus. And let's not forget Nicodemus shows up at the end to help bury Jesus. Okay, let's not forget that. Um, and, and oh, and I, this is something I just recently learned. He is named in some ancient Jewish literature. So he's a very well-known man. Um, uh, Nicodemus is in the Mishnah. No, he's in the Talmud. He's mentioned in the Talmud. So, or there's a man named Nicodemus from this period who's mentioned. So some people don't want to say it's him, but I, I think it was. Uh, now there was a man... <laughs> Man of the Pharisees. Uh, let's talk a little quickly about what the Pharisees, uh, who they were. The Pharisees appeared out of nowhere. Uh, they're, they're, we don't, we're not sure even where they came from. The, the idea is that when the dispersion happened, when uh, the, the Jews were uh, you know, sent to Babylon, that it had to happen. The synagogue had to happen. We're not really sure how the synagogue developed either, but we think it's all... Uh, a result of the Jews being dispersed and, and preserving Judaism outside of Israel. And so the Pharisees, the teachers come together. We're not even sure what the word Pharisee means. We think it may mean something like separated. We are separated, but we're not sure what that means. Do we separate ourselves from other people, which is what most people think it means? Some people think we separate ourselves so we can go study the Torah. Because what, what do you do when you no longer have a temple? Have, have you realized what a catastrophe, the destruction, uh, whichever of the destructions of the temple you're talking about, what a catastrophe that is for Judaism. I'm, I'm part of a religion that can only sacrifice in one place, and now that's gone, and I can't go back there. What do you do? Well, Judaism is done, Right? And so uh, uh, the Pharisees come along and say, well, we're going to have Torah story study. That's going to be our sacrifice. And we can't have a temple anymore, but we're going to have a synagogue where we can all gather together. And we're going to try to keep the, we- keep the wheels on, uh, so to speak. So the Pharisees are this, this group of people. They, they are not uh, homogenous. There are seven different groups of Pharisees, and they disagree and fight uh, over interpretations. Uh, but they, they are the power people. That's what you need to know. They're the power people. The Sadducees have the priesthood that they bought from the Romans, so they have that sort of power. But the people, the back-to-the-Bible people, those are the Pharisees. And they are not all bad guys. In fact, Nicodemus is a Pharisee. In fact, the leadership of the early church was largely Pharisaic. So don't, don't buy into, oh, all Pharisees are bad guys. But... Um, so Nicodemus is one of the good guys. So, uh, so here he is. So here's this man, 
a Pharisee named Nicodemus. He's a member of the Jewish ruling council, and that's the Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin is a Greek word. It's not a Jewish word. And it's the, it's, uh, the teachers of the law and the priests and the scribes. It's the group of those three people. So he's basically a member of the Supreme Court. Think of it that way. Very powerful, very wealthy, and, uh, um, and he's coming to Jesus to, to try to understand what's going on because as early as chapter 3, Jesus is already drawing big crowds. He's torn up the temple. In fact, there are people that believe he's, he certainly comes in response to what Jesus just did uh, because they're trying to investigate what in the world are you doing? I mean, what, what's going on here? Um, so he came to Jesus at night. And what have you always heard? He's sort of sneaking around because he doesn't want people to see him. That's not true at all. In Judaism, you, night is when you get together to talk about the Torah. So it, he's not necessarily hiding. Okay? So he comes to Jesus at night and he says, Rabbi, we, so he's, he's representing this investigative group that he, he represents, we know you are a teacher who's come from God. For no one could perform the miraculous signs you're doing if God were not with him. Now, he has reached some kind of conclusion that most of the other Pharisees haven't reached yet. God must be with you because you're doing the, you're healing people. You're doing good things. So God must be with you. The, 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 the jury's out, I think, for, for a lot of other people. Um, in reply, Jesus declared. Now, here it comes. He doesn't respond to what he said. Uh, this becomes the pattern of Jesus' interactions with people. People come up and they'll start talking to him, and then he's, he, he almost out of left field, he says something. And this uh, is, opens with the famous amen. Okay? My Bible it translates it, I tell you the truth. The truth is, we don't know what to do with this. Um, amen is a Hebrew word. It means I agree with you. And all through the Hebrew Bible, it's used at the end of Psalms, right? And, it, and we, we use it. We, we, I pray and we all say, I'm in. And you, that means I agree with you, okay? Um, Jesus uses this word in a completely new way. No one ever used it this way. And after him, no one ever uses this way. He says, amen, at, before he says things. And I have yet to find anyone who can explain this, at least not to my satisfaction. So NIV, we don't know how to translate. So we say, I tell you the truth. The words, I tell you the truth, are not in the text. The text just says, amen, amen. He says it once in the synoptics, and he says it twice in John. If you hear verily, verily, that's what King James did with it. Um, No one knows how to translate it. Now, when I was on the CSB committee, which is certainly the finest translation that's ever been done, (laughs) I campaigned hard. I said, let's just leave it. Amen, amen. If it's ambiguous, let's translate the ambiguity, right? Let's let it feel uncomfortable. And they wouldn't do it. I think they went with truly or I tell you or something, but um, I lost all all the battles. So this is this strange thing that Jesus does. And I, in a way, kind of like that I don't, I can't explain away this thing he does. Um, he's waving a flag. He's, it's Jesus' way of saying, I'm about to say something very important. Right? And I think that the, the oddness of it is he gets people's attention. Amen, amen. So amen, amen, he says. 
Um, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus is going, what? what? Where does this come from, right? Now, what you need to know is Jesus is using this idea of being born again as a Jewish idea. When a Gentile becomes a proselyte, he is said to be born again. So it's terminology that Nicodemus should know. It, th there's also, from Ezekiel uh, 36, there's this idea of being given a new heart and being a completely new person, right? So this is not a, should not be a foreign uh, concept to, to Nicodemus. But maybe because Judaism is broken, maybe he doesn't get it. Maybe he doesn't understand it because it's never happened to him. I don't know. So anyway, here, out of left field, here comes this, you must be born again to see the kingdom of God. But Nicodemus uh, said Nicodemus, how can a man be born when he is old? Surely he cannot enter a second time in his mother's womb to be born. What is that? Motif of misunderstanding. Jesus has said something. He's signaled by saying amen. And it's not that he kind of can't understand it. He way can't understand it. So he comes up with this obtuse, entering a man entering his mother's womb. I don't even want to think about you know, that image. And then Jesus, here comes another punch. Here's your, your, here's your left hook. Then Jesus says, amen, amen. So he's doing it again. I mean, get a feeling for what it must have been like to talk to this guy. You know, you just, he, he's a uh, fascinating person. I know he's the son of God, and I'll take a bullet for that. But he's also fascinating and interesting, and, he, and, and he, you can never tell what he's going to say next or do next. It's awesome. Uh, so here comes, here's, here comes the left hook. Amen, amen. Unless a man is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now one of the questions somebody said was, is, is Jesus saying he needs to get baptized with water again? I think it's, it's way more complicated than that. Uh, water and spirit. Water sounds like uh, human birth to me. In this passage, we'll see that. So you got to be born. You got to be born, and then you're born of the spirit. That's the second second birth. I'm not so sure. No, we'll we'll see. Um, uh, yeah, I tell you the truth. Unless a man is born of water and spirit, he can't enter the kingdom of God. Um, now what you need to know is, and this is, let me sidebar, a working Greek vocabulary is 10,000 words. In order for me to read 90% of the New Testament, I have to have a 10,000 word vocabulary. A working Hebrew vocabulary is about 500 words. I used to say it was 200 words because I'd read that someplace, but I've moved that number up. A Hebrew working vocabulary is very small compared to a Greek working vocabulary, which is what attracted me to Hebrew in the first place. Um, but what does that mean? What that, what that means is we have Hebrew words that mean lots of things. Um, and I, I had some good examples, but I've but I forgotten them. But this word here that Jesus is using is translated pneuma, which is a, the Greek word for wind or spirit. Uh, pneumatic tires. Pneumatic tires, it's that word. Um, Jesus is using the word ruach, which also means wind or spirit or breath. Uh, I wish I could think of the other examples because I'll think of it later, but there's some wonderful examples of Jesus using a word that means lots of things, and he means all those things when he uses that word. And that's, uh, that feels like ambiguity to us, and we don't like that. But in Hebrew, 
the, the fact that a word can have such a depth of meaning is a good thing. Okay, we think in Greek in nouns, and in Hebrew they tend to think in verbs. And I think this is an example of that happening. Although it also works in Greek in this in this uh, uh, in this passage. But what you need to know is the word spirit and wind and breath. That's the same word. That's the same word. And the translators, they're doing. They're just doing their job. They're doing their job. Okay. So I tell you the truth, uh, unless a man is born of water and spirit, ruach, uh, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Flesh gives birth to flesh. See, that's the water. That's why I think water and spirit. You know, do you see that, that? I think that's a fairly safe idea. Uh, flesh gives birth to flesh. That's the water part. Um, but spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. You should get this. You shouldn't be surprised, Nicodemus. You should understand this. Um, and now he's going to use a very pedestrian example, trying to sink down to his level so that he can communicate to him. Okay, the wind, ruach, same word. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. That's what it's like being born of the Spirit. I'll translate it that way. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. It's this thing that happens that it's, it's, it's spiritual. You don't see it. It's not like the flesh, birth of flesh. It's a different kind of birth. And it's like the wind. It's the ruach. It's the breath. Uh, you know, absolutely brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Um, and, and Nicodemus, you would expect him to go, oh, yeah. I, good point. I get that. That's not what happens. Nicodemus says, how can this be? See, that's the motif of misunderstanding. Jesus says something, and we're going to see this again and again and again and again. Every time he says something deeply spiritual, he's misunderstood. And again, Nicodemus, how can this be? You know, a new birth into a kingdom, you know, uh, incredible. Um, and here is Jesus, I think, being a little bit miffed. You're a teacher of Israel? That's a metaphor for Pharisee. The Pharisees were the disciples of Moses and the teachers of Israel. So that's, he's saying Pharisee. You're a teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things? Amen, amen. There it comes again. Um, we, <coughs> we speak of what we know. And we testify to what we've seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I've spoken to you of earthly things. I broke this down for you. Wind, right? Uh, uh, Water, spirit, I broke this down for you. I've spoken of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? Um, And here I think is... um, John speaking. I think Jesus stops speaking and John starts. I think this is a sermonic conclusion. This is a little sermon. You can you feel free to disagree with me if you want to, but just don't tell me because I'm very fragile. <laughs> so I think Jesus. This is John saying, "No one ever has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man." See, Jesus is second person there. Um, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. I think this whole thing all the way down to verse 21 is John 
summing up. And lots of reasons why I believe that. First of all, I just think the voice changed. Uh, he's going to refer to themes that go all the way back to the uh, introduction. See, see if you agree with me. But if you don't, that's fine. We'll still be friends. Uh, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That's John preaching. Um, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I bet if you have a red letter Bible, that's in red letters. Yeah. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. That's the plan of salvation, and every one of these sermonic blocks has the plan of salvation in it. This is the verdict. Now that's preaching. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world. What's that? That's the prologue, right? Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what has been done has been done through God. So that sums up all these themes. So I, I, I suggest to you that that's, uh, that's John summing up um, and not Jesus unpacking uh, necessarily everything he just said. Um, yeah. And I've, I've got a great quote. I don't know if, I, I don't think I'm smart enough to have said this. I, I think I quote, this is a quote. Faith is being grasped, grasped by the truth, which is confrontive and which is self-evident and overwhelming, not the result of trying to believe this born-again business. You know, God reaches out to you. He gives you the ability to understand and believe. He opens your eyes, that sort of thing. And that's what Jesus is talking about. You're being born again. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside. So they leave Jerusalem and they go outside. Um, Judean countryside can mean a lot of things, but uh, we're going to find out that he's going uh, to this area where John is, where he spent some time with them and baptized. And he's going to make really clear in a minute, Jesus isn't baptizing people. His disciples are baptizing people. So it's really interesting. Jesus appears, and what's his message? Repent for the kingdom of God is here. What does that sound like? That's what John the Baptist is preaching, see? And I think Jesus wants, we're going to see here, Jesus doesn't want to appear to be another John the Baptist. So we're going to see that in a minute. So John is going to make it clear, Jesus isn't baptizing, other, his disciples are baptizing. And what does that mean? They're receiving people who want to repent. And they're going to do, they're going to do a baptism, this new innovation of uh, John the Baptist. They're going to submit to a baptism of repentance, and that's a way to prepare you to meet Jesus. I mean, I'm repenting. What am I going to do with my sin? Well, here's the person that's going to deal with my sin eventually on the cross. So John was also baptizing at Anon, that, mean, that word means springs, uh, near Solom because there's plenty of water and people were constantly coming to be baptized. And here's a little whisper. This was before John was put into prison. Now what does that indicate? That indicates that you already know that story. Right? You already know that John ends up in prison. And he whispers this little explanation to you to go, well, obviously John hasn't been put in prison yet because he's out baptizing people. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew, 
Jewish leadership person, over the matter of ceremonial washing. And you understand now why that would happen, right? Why are they arguing about ceremonial washing? Because they can't understand what John's doing. Because it's not ceremonial washing. It's a baptism of repentance, and this is a new innovation. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, calling John the Baptist Rabbi. Interesting, see? Uh, Rabbi means great one. It doesn't mean you're this teacher who's gone to rabbinic school yet. That hasn't happened yet. Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one about whom you testified, well, he's baptizing and everyone's going to him. They may be trying to stir up the dissension. Maybe they don't understand. I don't know. I don't trust these guys, though. To this, John replied, a man can only receive what's given to him from heaven. You yourselves can testify. I said I'm not the Christ. So that's about the fifth time we've heard John the Baptist say he's not the Messiah. And that fits into John's life situation where there's a cult in Ephesus that's worshiping John the Baptist. Uh, You you yourselves can testify that I said uh, I'm not the Christ, but I'm said ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. It's a beautiful image that comes out of Judaism. Uh, in the Hebrew word is shashben. The shashben, spell it just like it sounds. The shashben is the friend of the bride. He's the best man. He's the best man. Okay. Uh, Hillel, the great rabbi Hillel, said that Moses was the shashben of God. Moses was God's best friend. And Aaron was the shashben of Israel. So this is an image that's, you know, that's, uh, that's in Jewish culture. And this is the role of the shashben. Now, we, the, the, the best man in our culture has very specific things he's supposed to do, right? He keeps the ring and that's where he throws the party and that kind of thing. So in Judaism, uh, the shashben has very specific jobs, okay? And this is in an era when brides are still stolen sometimes, if you can imagine. And one of the Shashbin's jobs was to guard the, the bridal chamber. So after the wedding happens, uh, the Shashbin escorts the bride. Why? Because he's the guy that the, the, bride, the bridegroom can trust, right? So he's going to take the bride, going to take her to the, the, the wedding chamber, the bridal chamber, whatever you call it, and he stands at the door. He's the guard. So nobody comes and steals her. And the image is, it's night. He stands in the dark, and he's listening for the voice of the bridegroom because he's his best friend. He knows what his voice is like. Nobody can fool him. And so the bridegroom comes. I'm here. And uh, so he steps aside. The, the bridegroom and the, the bride you know, come, come, come together. And the this, this specific uh, role, uh, d- description of what he's supposed to do is he's supposed to leave rejoicing. He goes away rejoicing. Why? Because his friend, his best friend is, you know, finally coming together with his wife. That's the role of the Shashpin. And John the Baptist said, that's me. I'm the person who stands and waits to hear his voice. And when I hear his voice, I go away rejoicing because Jesus is the bridegroom and the church, you know, as it were, is the bride. So listen to, with that background, listen to it again. Uh, I'm not the Christ. I'm the one sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits in the dark 
and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and is now complete. Okay, and, ba- and basically, I'm done. I'm done. The bridegroom has come for the bride. I was guarding, as it were. I was waiting to hear his voice. Uh, and then here's this conclusion. He must become greater. I must become less important. So there's, we're kind of done with John the Baptist now. That was, those are his parting words, as it were. And here comes another little sermon. This, this is not John the Baptist, I think, teaching. This is or speaking. This is John, the, the writer of the gospel, speaking. And again, I will not be dogmatic about this, but you will see it contains the plan of salvation. It's a little sermon. It's hard to not preach when you've been doing it 60, 70 years. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who's from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has heard, but no one accepts his testimony. The man who has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent, that's the prophet like in the Moses, Deuteronomy 18, the one whom God has sent speaks the word of God. To him God gives the spirit without limit. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in His hands. Whoever puts his faith in the Son has, present tense, eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see that life, for God's wrath remains on him. Does that not sound like preaching? And that's not John the Baptist. But again, we don't, you know, I have to dogmatically uh, say that. Okay? Press on. Chapter 4, the Samaritan woman. Now this this is another long discussion with one person, and it has the same structure as the discussion with Nicodemus. She's going to say something to him. He's going to say something that sounds like it's coming out of left field, and she's going to be completely clueless about what uh, he said. So it's this whole motif of misunderstanding. Um. So the Pharisees, listen to this complex sentence. Listen how complex this is. The Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized but his disciples. There it is. When the Lord learned of this, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. So he goes back up north to Galilee. So when Jesus hears that the Pharisees heard this, he leaves. You get the complexity of that? When Jesus heard, so there's this tension. So he's going he's gonna to leave because he doesn't want this conflict uh, to happen. Okay? The Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining more Although it was not a fact. When the Lord learned of this, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. And what have you heard all your life? Jews don't do that. Well, here's a very important piece to understanding the life of Jesus. Part of the fragmentation of Judaism, there are Judean Jews and there are Galilean Jews. Uh, I've just read two books on the Galilean Jewishness of Jesus. Okay? Uh, very, uh, not very different, but different approaches to Judaism in the fragmentation of Judaism. And one of the things of, Jude, of Galilean Jews is they don't have this stigma 
uh, with Samaritans the way Judean Jews do. They go through, Jesus goes through Samaria all the time. No, he has no problem with that. I just read an article that someone had found an inscription where Galilean Jews were letting Samaritans take care of their sheep for them. So they, they uh, don't have this, this anti-Samaritan. Now John is going to say Jews don't use the buckets or the utensils that Samaritans use. And that's true. But Jesus has to drink from her bucket. And we're, we're going to see the, the, the truth of this. The Bible's going to be accurate when it doesn't know it's being accurate here in a minute. So if um, he had to go through Samaritan, Samaria. Oh, uh, by the way, Josephus, who we all love and revere, Josephus Antiquities, book 20, line 118, says that Galileans go through Samaria all the time. So Josephus says it. So there you go. He's our, he's our man, right? Um, he says it actually in two places. He says it in, in the Antiquities and he says it in the, uh, the Life in 269. Yeah. Uh, so he had to go through Samaria. He came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, which is very close to the, um, Mount Gerizim, uh, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and there's a big church that's been built over Jacob's well. I've been there. Pretty cool. Um, Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired as he was from his journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. That's either noon or six. And I think noon, uh, the, the old way of, of, of uh, counting time would, would have said that this is noon. So it's hot. It's the, the heat of the day, and it's suspicious that she's there drawing water by herself. You know, she should be with the other women. I think there's, there's some good truth to all that. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, now we know about the whole schism between Jews and Samaritans. The Assyrians invade uh, in 720, and they resettle the land with foreigners. The foreigners uh, intermarry with the Jews that remain. The elite Jews are exiled. In the ancient world, that's how I'm going to destroy your culture. I'm going to, I'm going to you know, invade your town, and I'm going to exile everybody. You're intermarrying with their people, and you disappear as a people. That's why there are no Hittites or Perizzites or Ammonites. They're all gone because they intermarried and they disappeared. Well, the Jews know not to do that, right? So they go to Babylon, and they have their own culture, um, and, but the, the, the poorer Jews that were left in, did intermarry with the, the people that were resettled, and those are the Samaritans. So I come back after the exile, and I'm going to rebuild the temple, and you come up to me. You're one of these people, and you come up to me. I'm going to help you rebuild the temple. No, you're, you're not a Jew. You're, you know, you uh, betrayed our people or whatever. Uh, and so there was obviously friction. And so the Samaritans built their temple on Mount Gerizim, and the Jews built, rebuilt their temple on, in, in Jerusalem, and they hated each other. It was a lot of animosity. One year, um, the Samaritans took a bones, dead men's bones from graves, and right before Passover, they threw them into the temple court. They made the temple unclean so they couldn't have Passover. Well, you can imagine how that went over. The next year, the Jews burned the temple, the, uh, the Gerizim Samaritan temple to the ground. You don't get in that kind of a tit-for-tat thing <laughs> with the Jewish nation. They're going to get you back, right? They're going to burn your temple to the ground. So 
There, there is animosity, but it's, it's not as simple as Jew versus Samaritan. It's Galilean Jew, Judean Jew, and so that's, that's who this woman is. You can read about it in uh, Ezekiel 4 um, and 2 Kings 17, 6 through 24. Those are references I have. So when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food because you're thinking, why don't the disciples get him a drink? So John needs to explain that to you. Okay. Uh, will you give me a drink? The Samaritan woman said to him, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans, which is true, but not as, as, as simple uh, as, as uh, we've been led to believe. Oh, here's a quote from the Talmud. He that eats the bread of the Samaritans is like the one who eats the flesh of swine. That's Rabbi Eliezer, and he's 90 AD, so he's, he's pretty early. Um, and you need to know the bucket she has is a leather fold-up bucket. Uh, if, you watch the, if you watch The Chosen, she has these big, heavy pots, and that's probably not what she would have had. Um, so he makes a, you know, a genuine request, and she throws sand in his face, which is what she always does. You're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? Jesus answered, and I, let me translate it this way. If you only knew, if you only knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. See, that's like Nicodemus. That's like out of the blue comes, you must be born again. See, in the middle of this conversation, I'm going to give you living water. What? Uh, you would have asked him and he would have given you uh, living water. Interesting. She doesn't understand, just like Nicodemus didn't understand who should have understood it, but she doesn't understand the reference to living water, and there's a really good reason. All the references to living water in the prophets, mostly Jeremiah. The Samaritans don't accept the prophets. They only read uh, the uh, books of Moses. So at least she has an excuse for not understanding living water. But it's, a, it's an Old Testament image that he's... Uh, He's uh, using. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? That's like Nicodemus saying, can a man enter his mother's womb a second time to be born? Just this makes no sense. Um, Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as also did his sons and flocks and herds? That's more sand. And we love to psychoanalyze this woman, don't we? Here she's been married multiple times. She's obviously the kind of person who is attracted to the kind of men that are bad for her. You know, you know people like that who keep marrying the, the wrong person and, and there's, a, there's abuse and that sort of thing. And she's a wounded, she's a wounded person and, and she uh, is certainly throwing sand in Jesus' face every time he tries to reach out to her. Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Um, There's a better than quality to the water that Jesus offers, right? He'll say the same thing about the manna. He says, I'm giving manna. You eat this, you're never going to be hungry again. You drink this water, you'll never be thirsty again. That's the promise, okay? uh, um, That's that's in chapter 6 that he says that. Um, Indeed, the water I give them will become in him a spring of water welling up 
to everlasting life. Not a, a deep well, but a spring that bubbles up. That's the water I'm, I'm, uh, I'm offering you. Um, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I don't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to drink water. She still doesn't understand what he's saying. And how could she? So he's going to confront her in a different way. He said, Go, call your husband, and come back. So he, he engages her. And very, uh, very succinctly, she says, I have no husband. Now, this next verse, tone is everything. Tone is everything. You've got to ask yourself, what's the tone? I was raised thinking that Jesus, is, it's sort of, aha, I caught you. I don't think that's the tone. The more I get to understand who Jesus is, I think when he says these next words, I think there's a, a wounded, I think he's sad when he has to say this to her. But that's just, that's just my, that's my ear. Um. So let me read it to you the way I I hear it. You're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five. The rabbi said the limit was three. So she's two over the limit. The fact is you've had five. And the man you now have is not your husband. What you said is quite true. I think that's the tone. Because if if he had the other tone, it would have just pushed her away. But what happens is she, her heart starts changing. Listen. Um, Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. What is a prophet? A prophet is someone who says what God would say if he was there. That's a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, Gerizim. Um, but you Jews claim that the place we must worship is in Jerusalem. That's our Schism. And listen to what Jesus is about to do. He is giving up the superiority of of the temple of Jerusalem. Listen. Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. See, as a Jew, he could have said, yeah, you're right. Jerusalem is the only place that's legitimate to worship. But he goes, someday that's not going to matter. It's not going to be Gerizim or Jerusalem. Do you see what he's giving up? I think he's giving up, you know, legitimate, uh, a legitimate argument. He could have made a better argument, but he's not going to argue with her. So believe me, woman, the time is coming when you'll worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. And that's true. He's not being abusive. Five other gods are worshiped in Samaria besides Yahweh. Um. We worship what we do know for salvation is of the Jews, and that's just a fact. He's not one upsmanshipping her. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Spirit is not bound to one place, and truth is not bound to one people group. Okay? Uh, even as he says, you know, water and spirit, now we have spirit and truth. With Nicodemus, it was water and spirit, now it's spirit and truth. Um, for they are the kinds of worshipers the Father seeks. And by the way, God is seeking worshipers. We don't seek him and worship him. We respond to the fact that he's seeking us. Um, God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and truth. So spirit and truth. 
The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything or he will reveal everything to us. And the Bible's being accurate when it doesn't know it's being accurate here. The, the Samaritan name for Messiah was Tahav, which means revealer. So she's speaking very much like a Samaritan. Okay? So I know that when Messiah comes, he's going to explain or reveal everything to us. What had Jesus just done? He explained a bunch of stuff. She's going, hold up. Hold up. And then Jesus declared, I who speak to you, I am. Ego and me, I am. Or I am he, you can translate it either one. I like to think that he said I am. I who speak to you, I am. That's right out of Exodus 3. Just then the disciples returned and were surprised to find him speaking with a Samaritan. No, because Jews talk to Samaritan, uh, Galilean Jews talk to Samaritans all the time. No, they're surprised that he's talking to a woman because men do not speak to women in public in Jesus' world. Very important part of the culture. Men do not even speak to their own wives in public. There's a story of um, uh, a rabbi being uh, disciplining, disciplining a, uh, a woman because she had the gall to speak to her husband in public. Okay? So they're surprised that he's talking to a woman because you're not supposed to talk to women. Why? Because women really don't matter. They're second-class citizens okay, in many ways. Now, in Judaism, they're, they're lifted up more than the surrounding cultures, but they're still, still second-class citizens. But Jesus doesn't do that, women. Don't be offended. Jesus turns all that around. Um, in fact, let me go on and l- let me read these passages to you right now. Hold on. I have a, a, little, a little segment I want to read you on Jesus and uh, women, his women friendships, about the remarkable openness in a world where men didn't speak to women in public. So let me just, I'll just read this to you. Uh, biblical ideas about Jesus' friendships with women, thinking out loud. One, um, Jesus travels with a group of women who support his ministry. Luke names them for us. Of all the accusations that were made, true and false, nothing is ever insinuated, yet he, exp- he spends an extended time on the road with women. No one ever says anything, okay? Two, a woman at the well. The disciples are amazed to find him talking to a woman. Nothing is said about her being a Samaritan. The least we can say, Jesus displays an unusual openness to women that is seen as unconventional. He has a marvelous openness to women and children, by the way, because children are also second-class citizens. And the, we'll, we'll see in a minute in John, you know, Jesus is too important to, to, to spend time with children. The people want Jesus to bless their children, lay his hands on them, and give a prophetic blessing. And the disciples, of course, it's because they think they're too important. <laughs> But they think Jesus is too important for this. And it's one of the only times in John that Jesus gets emotional. He gets mad that they would do that. So um, it, he has an unconventional uh, openness to women. Three, uh, Mar- Mary kneeling at Jesus' feet. Uh, Jesus sees women in a new light and he gives them a new set of priorities. And that's where Martha is mad at Mary. And, uh, and Jesus says, don't rebuke her. 
She's chosen the better thing. It's better for a woman to be sitting at my feet, which is a metaphor for studying. It's better for a woman to be studying with me than for her to be working in the kitchen with you, Martha. That was a really radical thing for Jesus to say. Very ennobling of, of, of women. And he also says of Mary, nothing that he, he doesn't remotely say anything like this about the disciples. What she's done is going to be told in memory of her. Uh, that's a huge thing. He never says anything like that about anybody else. So suffice it to say, within his culture, Jesus shows a a wonderful openness, uh, very ennobling is Jesus to women. Um, Let's see. Um. Well, two more. The Syrophoenician woman, once again, an unusual openness, a more than gracious response. Jesus seems to be delighted at her persistence and her imaginative response when she says even the, 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 the little dogs can have the crumbs that fall from the table. Jesus is delighted by that and, and heals her daughter. And finally, the woman that with the bleeding, the hemorrhage, she seeks and finds Jesus she clearly fears what his response might be because when she gets healed, she hides. Uh, did she render Jesus unclean? And he responds to her daughter. He calls her daughter. So point is, wonderful, marvelous openness to Jesus, um, to women. And, uh, and it's what you'd expect. So they're surprised that he's, um, he's talking to a woman uh, but no one asks, what do you want or why are you talking with her? And we're, we'll, we'll begin to get little hints. The, disciple, the disciples see him doing something, but they don't say anything about it. They're learning best left unsaid. You know, best left unsaid. There's two or three more examples of this. Okay. Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be? Uh, the Christ. And the, the chosen does this beautifully. They have a little scene where Jesus basically talks about each one of the husbands that she has had. And Jesus clearly understands this was a good man, but you know, he left you, or this man abused you. And she's, she's saying, stop, stop, stop. And of course they made that up, but she says, come show, see this man who told me everything I ever did. So clearly they had a longer conversation that John doesn't record where he basically revealed her life to her. But he didn't reveal it in a condemning way. She's very excited that he's told her about her life. So it's not, oh, you've been married five, you bad, she doesn't rub her nose in it. Uh, and again, the chosen, I think they did that, they did a really good job with that. Um, so come show, uh, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? They came out of town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. Um, but he said, I have, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. And of course, he's referring to this encounter uh, with the woman. Um, and it's interesting in Matthew 4, uh, there's this discussion about him being tired. And Jesus says, man... Uh, man doesn't live by, by bread alone. So it's a reflection of the same idea. I've had something to eat. I've had this satisfying experience talking to this woman that you don't, you don't understand. Because, Matthew 4, 4, man doesn't live by bread alone. 
We need to learn that. We need to learn that. That we can actually be fed by our interaction with people. Our, um, because Jesus clearly is. So I have, I have food to eat you know nothing about. Okay, he just said something spiritual. Well, so what's going to happen? They're going to misunderstand. And then his disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? Do you see that? Every time he says something spiritual, they don't kind of misunderstand. They way don't understand. And that's John. Could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me. And we're going to see that is his favorite circumlocution, his favorite roundabout way of saying God. Who is God? He's the one who sent me. Who is Jesus? I'm the, one, I'm the sent one. And that all comes out of Deuteronomy 18, the prophet likened to Moses. That's in the book I'm working on now, I've got a chapter on who does Jesus think he is? And, you know, how does he, what is his own sort of self-awareness? And a big part of his understanding of himself is he's the one that's been sent. Who's his father? He's the one who sent me. And, uh, and, and that's also John. Uh, so, um, yeah. Uh, so uh, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say, and that's a, a, a formula, isn't there a saying, and he's going to quote this saying, four more months to the harvest. That's a, that's a common, uh, what, what was that? colloquialism, what's the word? Huh? I can't hear because you got your... Adage, that's the word I'm looking for. It's a common adage. And it's an adage to teach, don't hurry. Okay, that's the point of the, of the, of the, of the, of the saying. Four more months till the harvest, so like relax. So if, 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 you know, if I was a first century husband and I go into the kitchen and my wife is you know, all busy because we've got you know, guests coming, I would say, hey, honey, four more months till the harvest. Of course, that would drive her crazy, but... That's how you would use that statement. It's a statement that says, don't hurry. Okay? So he goes, don't you say, or isn't there a saying, four more months and then the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They're ripe for harvest. So it's no longer is it don't hurry. It's, hey, let's get to work. The harvest is ready. Okay? And she is one of the examples of that harvest. They're ripe for harvest. Even now, the reaper draws his wages. Even now he harvests the crop for eternal life so the sower and reaper may be glad together. That's Amos 9.13. Jesus thinks in the Old Testament. He doesn't just quote the Old Testament. He speaks Old Testament. So he's not specifically quoting Amos 9 there, but that's what's behind. You know, he it's so often we will say he alludes to some passage, but I, I want to say it this way. He thinks in the Hebrew Bible. Jesus lives in a one-book world. Imagine what that must have been like. I've got a box up in my cabin with 47 books on the life of Jesus. We got lots of books, right? What would it be like to live in a one-book world? Well, one, one thing it would be like is you would know that book really well. You would know that book really well. I have friends who, you know, were so amazed. Oh, these these biblical people, they had the whole Bible memorized and, you know, what dedication and how their brains must have been worked so well. Well, I heard a guy give a speech the other day. He, he would say, how many rock and roll lyrics do you know? 
So he started a Beatles song, and everybody in the crowd knew the next lyric. He goes, no, you, you've got it in your brains. And then he did movie quotes. He started quoting you know, movies that we all knew. So the, the truth is, we have as much in our brains as they had theirs. It's just that ours is, unfortunately, less redemptive content, shall we say? <laughs> so yeah, so Jesus speaks. He thinks in Hebrew, and he speaks Old Testament. He doesn't just quote the Old Testament. It's integrated into his world. So, uh, and this Amos, that's where the, the sower overtakes the reaper kind of thing. I think that's the image. Um, thus the saying, and here's another saying, one sows and another reaps. It's true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Um, others have done the hard work, and you've reaped the benefits of their labor. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything um, I ever did. And I, I didn't mention this before, but uh, again, what does John do? John supplements. Okay, And what you need to know is in the synoptics, like Luke, uh, Luke 9.51, the synoptics talk about the Samaritans rejecting Jesus. Okay, So at one point they reject him. John wants you to know, well, it wasn't always that way. So John tells us a story where the Samaritans receive and they're very excited about Jesus and a lot of them believe. So this is John doing his thing. Okay? So many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with him. And he stayed two days. Can you imagine? And because of his words, many more became uh, believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. We have now heard for ourselves, and we know this man really is the Savior of the world. So successful Samaritan uh, mission. Okay, we can stop there probably. So a series. Now we're going to have another Jesus talking to the official. Same thing. Long example of Jesus interacting with one person uh, and again, am I beating that horse to death for you? This is uniquely Johannine. This is what John does. And uh, I think it's a wonderful, wonderful uniqueness of John.